Romans chapter 8, and we'll start reading in verse 28 down through the end of the chapter. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn, the preeminent one, among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We can be done with the the message right now. Um, So these are obviously familiar and uh, glorious uh, words here in Romans chapter 8. I've titled this message, The Invincible Christian. Uh, The Invincible Christian. So not not the perfect Christian, not the sinless Christian, but the invincible one. Um, and kind of the, the thought behind this actually came when Brother Charles was preaching on endurance a few weeks back. Just He was preaching on it from the aspect of human responsibility, which is good and right. And, you know, the Bible does that frequently. It's exhort, exhorting us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, but I want us to kind of think about on the other side, and that is of the divine sovereignty side, that God, the God who is, is going to see to it that his people endure unto the end, that God is going to cause it. He's going to make it happen for every true child of God. And so I wanted us to kind of consider um, some of these thoughts here in Romans chapter 8 for the encouragement of our faith, particularly if there's any of you that are plagued, repeatedly plagued by thoughts about not making it to the end, not crossing the finish line, um, I think that's a reality in the Christian life. It's, a, it's an attack upon our minds sometimes by the devil of just that you're not going to make it. You're going to come short. You're not going to endure to the end. Uh, but this is meant as an encouragement to us that if you belong to God, you can and you must and you will make it to the end. So let's, uh, let's look at some of these thoughts here. The first thought is this. We must endure because it is part of the eternal plan of God. And we see that here in verse uh, 28 and 29, uh, kind of looking down to 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, brethren, the thing that Paul's wanting us to realize here is that your, your life, your day in and day out life is bigger than just the things that you're experiencing. Your life is caught up in something vast, something huge. And it's the eternal plan of God. It stretches back from before the world was and, and all the way into eternity future. I mean, look at, look at what he says here. He says that we were foreknown. These whom he foreknown, these are specific people. This is not everyone. This is foreknown, knew beforehand. And we know that in the Bible, knowledge, when God talks about knowing someone, it's not just knowing facts about them. It's that God knew you in a special way before the foundation of the world. You were foreknown. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. He says that we were predestined, destined beforehand, predetermined to what? To end up looking perfectly like Christ one day. That was predetermined by God in your life. Called, the effectual summons, right? That God called you at a point in time. It wasn't just an invitation. It was it, it, The word came with power into your life and something happened. You, God began to tug on you. God drew you to himself and into his kingdom. Justified. Declared righteous before the throne of God, absolved of all guilt, totally 100% forgiven, declared right in the eyes of his law, and glorified the final result, right? Sinlessness in heaven. He's saying this, this, your salvation was bigger than just the moment that you believed. It began all the way back here and it's, and, and is going to culminate in glorification. Everyone who is foreknown ends up glorified. It's, it's an unbreakable chain. You're part of the plan of God, and it cannot be broken. Notice, even notice in these verses, it says he also glorified. He speaks of it in past tense. It's like in the mind of God, when he sets his affection on you, when he saves you, it's as good as done. It's going to happen. It's a certainty. You will be glorified with Christ in heaven one day. So what we see here is that this first point is this, that our endurance, our continuing, it depends ultimately on the plan and the purpose of God. Do we have responsibility? Yes, but ultimately it hinges upon God, his purpose. Romans 11.29, kind of a different context, but it illustrates this, this kind of truth. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, literally without repentance. He's never going to change his mind on it. When God gives the gift of salvation, he's never going to go back on it. He's never going to change his mind. When he calls someone, he's never going to uncall them. He's never going to go back on it. Literally, the, this is what the, the word irrevocable means. Not able to be changed, reversed, or recovered. Final. That, that is the way that God works. That's how God deals with people. Has God called you? Has he given grace to you? It's never to be reversed. And brethren, some of us, you, maybe you think wrong thoughts about God. You think that God is going to change his mind. You think that he is going to reverse it, that you're going to sin in some way and it's going to mess everything up and then God is going to reject you. Uh, but the Bible says the opposite. God's calling his gifts. They're irrevocable. He's never going to go back on them. Such thoughts are not from God, but from the devil. With God, it's not yes and no. It's yes in Christ Jesus. So the first point there, we must endure because it's part of the eternal plan of God. Second point, we must endure because God is for us. Look in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God. 
If God is for us, the Almighty, right? The Psalms say the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. You think about these massive trees. God just speaks and boom, just shatters them like it's a toothpick, like it's nothing. It says that the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord and that the earth is upheaved by his presence. This God, this, this God of infinite power behind you, for you, standing with you, determined to be with you until the end. That's what the Bible says. This God who's able to move heaven and earth is, is going to do so to accomplish his purposes in you. It must happen. It will happen. This God, the omniscient one. I mean, brethren, do you have a wise heavenly father? Is, is God wise? Is God a God of wisdom? I mean, you parents, would you withhold wise counsel from your children if they're about to stumble in a terrible way? I mean, if they're about to mess up their life completely, would you, would you step in and do everything you could to plead with them and try to teach them the right way they should go? Will not God do the same thing with us? I mean, is God, what kind of father is God? He's a good father, right? I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So God, think about that. God is for you. You must endure because the God who is is for you. If God be for us, who is against us? Well, the answer is there's, there's lots of things against us, right? I mean, there's the world. The world is not your friend. It's not trying to help you on toward heaven. It's not trying to help you on toward God. Hollywood doesn't care about your walk with the Lord. Yeah. Demons, satanic principalities, powers, they're opposing you. They're tempting you. They're trying to trip you up. They have schemes against your life. They know your weak points. The devil's opposing you. He does not want you to succeed in the Christian life. So the devil's against us. Sometimes individuals are against us, right? They have it out for you. A teacher has it out for you because you're a Christian or or whatever. But he's asking this question here saying, what is that to God? If God is for us, who is against us? What what do those matter? I mean, you you might think of it like this. If you put all of the things that are opposed to the Christian, the Christian life, it's like a bunch of ants trying to raise up an army and fight against Mount Everest. I mean, it's impossible. They can, after a thousand years, they may have destroyed one little rock. You know, I mean, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. It's not like there's this big power struggle between God and the devil and, you know, what's going to happen at the end of the day. The devil's nothing to God. God is infinite. The devil's finite. It says that the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He, he laughs at people that tries to oppose his plan, his purpose, what he's accomplishing, scoffs at them. In Isaiah, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's like he's, he's ruling, he's sitting above the circle of the earth, and all the people, they're just like a bunch of little grasshoppers to him. I mean, just think about that. If you fear man, if you're afraid of man, just, they're just a grasshopper chewing on grass. I mean, they're nothing to be afraid of if God be for you. The weakest saint shall win the day, though death and hell obstruct the way. I mean, the weakest saint, the most feeble one, they must win because God before them. So that's the second point. God is for us, therefore we must endure. Next point is this, that God has already given us the highest gift imaginable, and he will not fail to give us the lesser gifts, including endurance. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? No one is going to be able to say this. God loved me enough to save me, 
but he didn't love me enough to keep me until the end. No one's ever going to be able to say that. If he gave you Christ, if he's done, if he's given you the highest gift, how will he not also with him give you the lesser things? He's going to give you heaven, eternal life, all the rewards. They are going to come. It's impossible. He's already given us the greatest gift. Next point, the justification of God is eternal and unchanging. Look here in in verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Brethren, it's saying what, God, what the Bible is saying here is it is God who justifies. If God justifies you, who can condemn you? If the highest court of the land is justified, you, a lesser one, cannot condemn you, right? That's the argument. You may condemn yourself. I mean, you may have thoughts condemning yourself. You may feel guilt when you sin against God. Satan can accuse you and condemn you, but he's saying... It doesn't, ultimately, it doesn't matter. They can't hurt you. You can't, you can't ultimately hurt yourself if God, who cannot lie, says he'll never condemn you, that he's justified you. He's declared you righteous. Christ Jesus is he who died. He's saying it's based upon the blood. It's based upon the death of Christ. Justice has been satisfied. All of your sins have been paid for. They've been dealt with. Past, present, future. Eternal justification. Will one drop of the Redeemer's blood fail to accomplish its purpose? Which, to which we can say no. Not one drop is going to fail to save his people from their sins. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He did not die just to make salvation possible, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that he died to save people. His death was effectual. It actually did something happen on that cross that God was determined to save you and that that salvation would be worked out in time in your life. Turn with me over to the book of John, chapter 6. John chapter 6, talking about the mission of Christ, what what he came to do. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So he's saying, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of God, the will of Him who sent me. What was the will of Him who sent me? That He lose nothing, that not one soul that God the Father had given to Christ should be lost. It's determined. His blood will save you. Your first thought when you sin is not that I'm not a Christian. That's not, that should not be your first thought or that God condemns me now. No, just your first thought should be I should run back to God. He's my father now. I'm justified. I shouldn't try to separate myself from him, but I should go back to him knowing that I'm saved by the blood of Christ, claiming that promise again, believing afresh his death on my behalf. 
Next thought is this. We must endure, if you want to go back to Romans 8. We must endure unto the end because Jesus Christ is praying for us, right? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is praying for us. I mean, think about that. Ryan Fullerton, he preached a message one time that I heard. He said, where is the greatest prayer meeting in the world or in existence? And he said, it's in heaven, right? The, the prayers of Jesus Christ, the intercession of Jesus Christ. What sorts of things do you think he's praying? I mean, we kind of have a glimpse of the things that are on his heart, right, from his, the, the prayers that we have recorded in the Gospels. He prayed things like this in John 17. Father, keep them in your name. Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory. I mean, think about these prayers. He's praying before the Father. Keep them in, your, in my name. I, I want them to be here. He's praying to God. I want them to come all the way here, all the way to heaven, not, not halfway and then abort the mission and then, and then lose your salvation and perish eternally. He's saying no. Sanctify them. He's praying for our sanctification. You remember Peter in the gospel account. Christ came to him and said, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. I mean, think about that. What caused Peter to turn back again after he had failed the Lord so miserably? It was the prayer of Christ. Christ prayed for him that his faith would not fail. What was sustaining Peter's faith? What was, it wasn't Peter's willpower. It wasn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work up this faith and, you know, and just make this thing happen. It was the prayer of Christ sustaining the faith. And brethren, it's the same way with us. How do, we, how do you know that ultimately in the end you're not going to throw in the towel and your faith's not going to fail? Because if you belong to Christ, he's prayed for you that your faith would not fail, right? Peter says, protected by the power of God through faith. I used to take that verse and it used to kind of bother me like, oh, I mean, you know, I better keep believing God so that God's power keeps protecting me. But I was looking at it completely the wrong way. He's saying the power of God is protecting you through the avenue of faith. He's sustaining your faith. Until the end. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, amazing verse. Overcoming the world? Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world. He said, don't worry. He says, you can do the same thing just by believing, just by trusting that he's the Son of God. So it's the intercessions of Christ, right? Continuing this work in us. I wanted to share a short little section here from Pilgrim's Progress that I thought of. This is the account of Christian. This is an allegory for some of you that may not know of the Christian life. So Christian's kind of going through this journey of life. And he comes to this house called the interpreter's house. And this is what it says. Then then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where a fire was burning against a wall. Kind of interesting, this fire's coming up next to this wall. And, and one standing by it, casting much water upon it to quench it, yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. So here's a strange sight. There's this man pouring water on it, but it's, it's like burning all the hotter and all the more flames are coming up here. Then said Christian, what means this? 
The interpreter answered, This fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that cast water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire notwithstanding burn higher and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason of that. So he had him about to the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand. He's got this cup or a vessel of oil of which he did also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. So on the other side of the wall, there's someone else pouring some, they're pouring oil, oil on it, right? Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. They're still growing in grace. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how the work of grace is maintained in the soul. He said, it's Christ behind the wall. The devil's trying to throw water on it all your life, but... How's this thing burning hotter and higher still? It's, many times you don't even know, but it's God, it's Christ behind the wall, putting the oil of his grace upon your life. It's the prayers, it's the intercessions of Christ and the work of his spirit, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We must endure because Christ intercedes and continues his work in us. So the intercessions of Christ. Lastly, we must endure because of the inseparable power of Christ's love, right? It is impossible to finally fall away because Christ loves you too much to let that happen. Verse, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, sword, the worst things you can imagine in life, is that... Does that mean God has forsaken you? Does that mean God is, the love of God has altered or changed at all toward you? No, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, the invincible Christian. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying there is a love that is greater than any earthly love, right? There's a love that the Bible says is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it, right? Paul says that it surpasses knowledge. It's, it's like you can think about it, you can study it, but it, it, it passes it up. You can only come so far. That's why Paul's praying for an experience. He's saying you, you can only know this thing directly. You can't just learn about it. You can't just read about it. You have to taste it and see, know of it for yourself. You are blessed if you if this love has laid hold of your life. Like the hymn says, O love that will not let me go. It won't let you go. If you're a child of God and you've ever tried, tried to go very far from God, it's a love that will not let you go, and it will come after you, right? It will discipline you. You know, we've, we've been discouraged. We've seen people that have fallen away, you know, and I hope and we pray that maybe... God yet is not done with them, right? That they, they are a child of God and God is going to rescue them and redeem them. But if, they, if we do see people fall away and they do finally fall away, we know one thing, they did not belong to God because the love of God will not let 
a true child of God ever go? It's a love that stores all your tears in its bottle, right? A holy and jealous love that will not share you with another. It remains true when all other loves would fail you. Think about the things that Paul says. It's like he's trying to think, what are the biggest things in the world or in existence that could, that could threaten this, that could destroy this? Life, death, things present, future things, scary future things, things to come. He says, nor any other created thing. He says, there's nothing. There's nothing in existence that can separate God who loves the souls of his people. There's nothing that can break this love. I wanted to share an account. This is from the book Tortured for Christ, Richard Wormbrandt, who did um, experience terrible persecution, suffering uh, in Romania. You know, he began Voice of the Martyrs. So this was the gentleman who began this after suffering many years um, in prison under the communist regime. Uh, this is after he'd been there for a while. I mean, they'd starved him, they'd brainwashed him, they'd play things over and over again like there is no God, there is no God on loudspeakers just for days. We couldn't sleep at night. In solitary confinement, we could not pray any more as before. We were unimaginably hungry. We had been doped until we became as idiots. They, dr- they would drug him too. We were as weak as skeletons. The Lord's prayer was too much and too long for us. They couldn't even, they couldn't even recite. They're so broken down, beat down. Couldn't even say the Lord's prayer anymore. We could not concentrate enough to say it. My only prayer repeated again and again was, Jesus, I love thee. That's all I could say over and over again. Jesus, I love thee. Jesus, I love thee. And then one glorious day, I got the answer from Jesus. You love me? Now I will show you how much I love you. At once I felt a flame in my heart which burned like the coronal steamers of the sun. The disciples on the way from Emmaus said that their hearts burned when Jesus spoke with them. So it was with me. I knew the love of the one who gave his life on the cross for us all. Such love cannot exclude the communists, however grave their sins. So he says, I just prayed that over and over again. And then one, one day God answered me. Christ, Christ manifested his love toward me. We must endure because the love of Christ, the inseparable power of Christ's love toward us. So brethren, I guess my question here for us today is this. Are you resting in and trusting in God's power to keep you, to cause you to endure? Or are you worried? Are are you constantly thinking thoughts about that God is going to forsake you or that you're not going to make it in the end? Or do you think that your salvation ultimately is dependent upon your labor and your striving? Because the Bible says, no, it's not. It is not ultimately dependent on Must you strive? Must you labor? Yes, you must. You must put to death sin. You must do all the things the Bible says. But with the knowledge, knowing, and relying upon God, that it's Him. It's Christ who's praying for you. It's God who's for you. It's God who's, you're wrapped up in His eternal plan of salvation. Another question, does hearing about God's promises to keep you make you want to follow Christ more, or does it make you want to kick back and enjoy more sin? Oh, if it's ultimately in God's hand, then I can just take it easy now. I can just, I can live it up. Because that exposes your heart, right? If your heart is, oh, I'm safe, I'm secure, now I can go, I can live in as much sin as I want, that's, uh, you're unconverted, you're lost, 
right? But for the true Christian, assurance that God is with you, that he loves you, that he's with you, makes you want to follow him more. God has freely loved me. He's going to freely give me all things. I want to yield to him. I want to surrender to him. So, brethren, what should our response be? I think it should be a few things here. Gratitude to God. And we should thank God, just who he is, that, that he is the God of this magnificent plan of salvation, the God that's freely loved, it, loved us. He's done it all. He's justified us, and he's going to keep us until the end. It should cause us to rely upon God and not be arrogant or, or think that the ball's in your court somehow, that, that you're going to do this by your own manpower, your own strength but relying in God. It should encourage us to believe what he said, right? Believing that God, that God's call, his gifts of grace are irrevocable, never to be changed, never to be turned back. So I just wanted to encourage us in these ways just to uh, to put our trust in God and, and to lean upon him that he's going he's gonna to cause us to endure into the end. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray here. Lord, we do thank you that you are the God who you say you are and that you're faithful, true, unchangeable, uh, Lord, and just for all of your promises to be with us, to conform us to the image of Christ. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're not the God of halfway salvations, Lord, but that you're going to, you're going to carry it on to completion. And we just entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.